Hello everyone, welcome to this special live session, 7 Timeless Lessons from 10,000 Years of Human History. So like the title says, I'm going to present 7 Timeless Lessons from 10,000 Years of History. I have been answering many, many questions about history uh, that are taken from you, maybe hundreds of questions. So I'm going to synthesize some of the learnings from these questions and present to you these learnings. So let me begin with a personal story. So I have been studying history for a very long time since I was a child. And the reason I have been so fascinated with history is because it helps you understand the forces that have shaped the world. It helps you understand how the world that we live in has come about. How, how What are the forces and powers that shape the world? So it helps you understand the cause and effect chain and you also get a good understanding of geopolitics, the better you know history. So th these are the reasons why I have always been fascinated with history, even though I am a scientist. So I have, in the as a child, I studied Roman history, Greek history, Egyptian history, and many other, uh, his the history of many other regions of the, of the world. But I did not enjoy studying Indian history because it was never glorious and it was kind of sad. So I always studied the history of other parts of the world. Now, recently, about a few years ago, maybe 2015, 2016 or thereabouts, I came across this interesting, uh, these interesting headlines started turning up. So let me show you these headlines. So it was about an invasion that happened in Europe about 5,000 years ago. Between 5,000 and 4,000 years ago, there was this massive invasion of horse riding men into Europe. Now this invasion happened from the east, from this, uh, from the Eurasian steppe, and these men who entered into Europe, they were very violent. They are called the most violent group of people who ever lived, and so on. So this was uh, the news that came in. It, I found it very interesting, and uh, so this is another headline of the same uh, of the same story, and here is another one. So these people, they they entered entered Europe. They what they did was they conquered the entire continent in a very short period of time. They massacred all the men and then they took their women as their wives or their partners. And the present day European people are the descendants of these invading men and the original European women. So the entire patrilineal DNA uh, of Europe changed at this point in time. And what you find is that there is this character, there is this sudden change in the archaeological record in Europe. You suddenly find uh, new kinds of pottery, for instance. Uh, here is an example of that kind of pottery. You find new kinds of pottery, like you can see here. You find ex examples. You you find examples of massacres, as you can see here. You you find archaeological evidence of people put together, thrown together in a pit, uh, randomly, haphazardly. It's not a proper burial. You find that, and uh, so on. And then uh, these uh, invaders, their faces were reconstructed, and this is what they looked like. So I found it very interesting. And I, as a scientist, as a physicist, I'm able to read genetics papers. I'm able to understand them. So I went a little deeper into this, and I, I found that these people, these invaders, they had a patrilineal lineage called R1B. Now, it's interesting that R1B is very similar. It's very closely related to the Indian uh, petrolineal lineage, which is most prevalent in India and other parts of Europe, which is R1A. So it is very closely related to the Indian, to the most prominent Indian petrolineal lineage. So I found it interesting and I went a little deeper into this to understand what's happening, right? And then I started uncovering very interesting things. So I found that uh, the uh, oldest known non-African patrilineal lineage is called haplogroup F. M89. It's about 60,000 years old. And I found that it originates in the Indian subcontinent. Right? And more than 90% of non-African men are descended from this one patrilineal lineage, which originated in India about 60,000 years ago. Then I also found that the matrilineal lineages M and N account for more than 95% of all non-African women who are alive in the world today. And these two 
haplogroups M and N also originated in the Indian subcontinent some 65 to 75,000 years ago. So I, it, it is clear that India is the original founder's zone. It, it means that India is the first region founded after the out-of-Africa migration of Homo sapiens. And looking further into this, I discovered that there are many genetics papers that demonstrate that there has been very negligible gene flow into India for the past 10,000 or more years. I also discovered that the north and south of India, the people have almost identical or very similar genetic lineages. So there is no real genetic difference between people of North India and South India, which is very interesting. Then I looked a little bit into the uh, archaeological record. So I found that the city, the, the ancient archaeological site of Birana is about nine and a half or 10,000 years old. It is the oldest known archaeological site in the Indus Valley civilization uh, area. And I found that the Indus Valley or Harappan or, or Saptasindhu or Sindhu Saraswati civilization, this geographical area, it is the largest of all ancient civilizations. It is more than Egypt and Mesopotamia put together. It is also the oldest known civilization, the oldest continuously existing civilization because it, because it still exists. And this was a very advanced civilization. There was standardization of weights and measures throughout the length and the breadth of the geography. And then I found that there is evidence of cultural continuity in the archaeological record. For example, these ancient statuettes of ladies, which are more than 5,000 years old, they have this uh, sindur in their, in their hair, which is still practiced by women in India today. There is, uh, there is archaeological evidence of yoga, which goes back 4-5,000 years. There is archaeological evidence of shivlingas, which goes back all this time. So it is clear that there is unmistakable evidence of, of cultural continuity between the Harappan era and today's India, right? And then there is more. We find that the city, the ancient city, the mythical city of Dwarka actually exists under the sea, exactly where it was said it, it, it disappeared. We also find that the mythical, supposedly mythical river Saraswati also exists. Uh, you can see the, the Paleo channel on, on, Google, on Google Earth and various other maps. So it is, so all of this uh, evidence, if you take it together, it's very surprising because it goes against what all the experts have been saying. For example, people like Bal Gangadhar Tilak, R.C. Majumdar, A.L. Basham, Frank, Frank Witzel, Robila Thapar, Irfan Habib, Roberto Colasso, David Reich, and so many more. They have all been saying, and all of our textbooks, all of our experts have been saying that there was an Aryan invasion of India. And this culture, this Hinduism and the Sanskrit language, which uh, you find in India, it came into India very about, about 1500 BCE. But all of this archaeological evidence shows that it is not really true. So... If we look at all of this evidence together, we find that there is no evidence of an Aryan invasion. There is zero archaeological evidence of an invasion. We saw just now that there is significant archaeological evidence of massacres in Europe because of this invasion that happened there. But here in India, we find zero evidence of an invasion. We find zero evidence of a migration. On the other hand, we find layer upon layer of genetic, archaeological, linguistic, literary geological, hydrological, and other kinds of evidence, which all together form a consistent, predictable, repeated pattern that comprehensively debunks the Aryan invasion or migration theory. So that brings us to lesson number one. Lesson number one is always be skeptical. Don't believe anything blindly. Don't believe anybody blindly. Don't hero worship anybody. Even experts can be wrong. Even experts can have agendas. Trust, but verify. That is lesson number one from history. Let's go on to lesson number two. So I'm going to fast forward a few thousand years. Uh, the era of history we are now talking about is about 2000 years before today. Uh, it, it dates back to the Roman era, Roman Empire. So this is... Uh, a map of Roman era Europe. It's from 68, 69 AD. So if we go a little bit before that, in 1 AD, we find that the Roman Empire had con conquered much of Europe. This map is more or less representative of that time. So in 1 AD, the Roman Empire had conquered much of Europe. 
and there was this region called Germania Magna, if you can see here. It was the last, uh, the last, uh, the uh, the last boundary for them, the last frontier for the for the Romans. They wanted to conquer that and take it over. So this is present-day Germany, and it was inhabited by the Germanic tribes in those days. A number of various Germanic tribes. Now the Romans had some military officers who were of Germanic origin. They had been kept hostage since their childhood in Rome, so they had grown up speaking Latin, and they had grown up in in the bosom of Roman culture. And these Roman officers would be sent into Germania Magna to. Uh, invade and conquer Germany. Now, one of these officers, one of these Roman military officers of Germanic origin, his name was Arminius. He rebelled against Rome, and he. So this, so this is guy. This is the guy. His name is Arminius. This is a. This is most likely a representation of this Roman Germanic uh, officer, Arminius. So this man rebelled against the Romans. He unified all these different Germanic tribes. At that time, the Germanic tribes were all fragmented. They were all disunited. They were all at war with each other. And that is what the Romans used to conquer these regions. So Arminius rebelled against Rome, despite being a very high-ranking Roman, Roman military officer. He rebelled. He managed, he succeeded in unifying all the Roman, all the all the Germanic tribes together. He himself belonged to the Cheruski tribe. So Arminius did that. He was able to unify the Germanic uh, peoples. And in 9 AD, in the very famous Battle of Teutoburg Forest, Arminius with his men was able to destroy three Roman legions in this in this forest in this battle. The Roman uh, general called Publius Quintilius Quintilius Varus, who was the commander of these regions of these legions, was compelled to commit suicide because his entire army had been destroyed. So this is one of the greatest uh, military uh, campaigns of all time. What the the consequence that this had was that it removed Roman military presence from Germany. It permanently ended the Roman imperial presence in these regions of Europe and it prevented the Romanization of the Germanic peoples. If you see, you will find that even today in parts of France, Italy, even uh, even places like the, the British Isles, you see a significant amount of Roman influence, even today culturally, or linguistic influence. But there is none of that in Germany. It is all because of what Arminius was able to achieve. So this defeat of Rome, it precipitated the eventual decline and collapse of the Roman Empire itself. This was the starting point. This was the inflection point. This is one of the most decisive battles of known history. The year 2009 was the uh, 2000th anniversary of this battle. And what is strange is that the German people did not really celebrate this event because Unfortunately, in Germany's school and uh, college textbooks, there is almost no mention of Arminius, which is very sad, isn't it? So this illustrates, so, so uh, Arminius was not completely unknown. There is a statue or two of him, but statues are just isolated things. Unless you have mentions of, of this historical figure in the textbooks, most people will not come to know about it. A statue somewhere doesn't make really any difference. So this illustrates the, the importance of knowing your history, right? So this is lesson number two. We must know our history. If you don't know your history, you don't really know yourself. You don't know who your ancestors were. You don't know how great your people are and your, and your heritage is. So know your history. And to do that, you need to look beyond your textbooks. That is the most important thing. That is lesson number two. Now, let's move on to lesson number three. And for this, we need to move on uh, to another time period, which is about the uh, approximately the 5th century BCE. And the region is Greece, present-day Greece. This is the region that we are talking about, present-day Greece. As you can see, this is the region. And we are talking about the Pelopon uh, Peloponnesian War. And this actually gives us some understanding of geopolitics. So we're talking about events that took place in the Peloponnese, uh, 
Peloponnese Peninsula, which you can see in this uh, in this map. The circled region is Greece, present-day Greece. And uh, during this time, in the 5th century BCE, the Greece was made up of a number of city-states, which were always at war with each other. This is in the 5th century BCE. Now, at this time, Sparta was a traditional hegemonic power in Greece. It was the most powerful city-state. Now, in the 5th century BCE, Athens, if you can see here, the city of Athens. So here is Athens and here is Sparta. And this peninsula over here is called the Peloponnese Peninsula. So in the 5th century BCE, in the first half of the century, Athens began to emerge as a powerful city-state. Now what happened was that, if you go back here, you can see this entire peninsular peninsula region is present-day Turkey. It is called Anatolia historically, and this was part of the Persian Empire, right? And the Persian Empire was a very big power at the time. So there was a great deal of conflict between Greece and Persia in the 5th century BCE, in the, especially in the first half. Now, Anatolia was Persian, like I said. The Athenians, the people of Athens, were able to repulse the Persians. They defeated them in several battles. And as a consequence, Athens became very powerful. Now, Athens had a much larger population than Sparta. Athens was able to create a confederation of city-states. And uh, this became an alliance of Athens. Now the Spartans had their own alliance on the Pel Peloponnese Peninsula and this became a big conflict eventually. Now Athens had built up a very large army. They had a very, they had a much bigger army than Sparta, lots of infantry. They had a huge navy, more than 300. So this is the infantry of Athens. This is called the phalanx, phalanx formation. These soldiers are called hoplites. The Athenians built an enormous navy, more than 300 naval ships of this kind. These are called galleys. And Sparta had not a single naval ship. Sparta had zero ships at the time. So Athens became so powerful that they began to extract tribute from their alliance and they became a proper hegemonic power, right? So the Pelop uh, Peloponnesian War happened in the, uh, in the second half of the 5th century BCE. It was a protracted, drawn-out affair. It lasted more than three decades. There were periods of ceasefire. There were periods of warfare. Initially, Athens was able to dominate because of their uh, the way they did their warfare. They had these men called hoplites. They were spearmen. This was the infantry of Athens. They also had mercenaries who were Scythian horsemen. They, they, this was the cavalry of Athens. And then they used these unusual tactics of putting their archers, their hoplites, their spearmen, and even the cavalry on their naval ships. And their navy was very agile. So, it, so this led to a period of Athenian dominance over Sparta. But eventually, the Spartans adapted and they started copying Athenian tactics. And what's interesting is that the Spartans got help from Persia, from Darius II. So eventually what happened was that Sparta invaded and occupied Athens, the city of Athens. And this was, this was the end of the era of Athenian dominance in Greece. Now Athens again emerged in the 4th century, the next century, and there was another war. And the cycles of history go on. Now the Athenian, the Greek historian Thucydides observed that war is inevitable when an emerging power threatens to displace an existing great power as a regional or international hegemon. And this phenomenon is called the Thucydides trap. It is relevant even today in politics and geopolitics. It can be applied to the US-China rivalry. The US is the existing great power, the existing hegemonic power. The Chinese are an emerging power. They aim to displace the US as the global power. And this is interpreted by most geopolitical observers and analysts as something that will most likely lead to war sometime in the future. So this is, this is an example of how the understanding and knowledge of history helps you understand geopolitics in the present day world. So this is lesson number three, the Thucydides trap. It says that war is inevitable when an emerging power threatens to displace an existing great power as a regional or international hegemon.
This is lesson number three. Now, let's move a few, many centuries forward to the 18th century. And we are talking about, we are talking about the Napoleonic era in France. This is Napoleon Bonaparte, one of the most consequential historical figures of the past 1000 years at least. So Napoleon Bonaparte was born in the island of Corsica, which was at the time, he, it was, he was born in 1769. He was born in this island, as you can see, the island, the large island that is circled over here. It, it was an Italian island. It belonged to the city of Genoa to its north. The, people, the city of Genoa owned the island of Corsica. Now, they, the Genoese sold Corsica to France. And uh, and this, the people of Corsica rebelled against the French because they saw the French as an invasive uh, force, as an occupying force, and they did not want to be under France. So the people of Corsica went to war against France. There was a there was a period of warfare, and Napoleon's father fought against the French. Now uh, the rebellion obviously failed. The French were too powerful, and Napoleon's father made his peace with the French and he, he belonged to a reasonably reasonably prominent family. So he was able to make himself the emissary of Corsica to the Emperor of France in Paris. Right Now Napoleon, because of this connection of his father, was able to enroll in a military school in France. Right, So he was able to enroll in a military school in France. Let me, uh, one second, let me share that. Just a minute, let me share that. Okay, here it is. So this is an image of young Napoleon Bonaparte. He was able to enroll in a military school in France and he was good. So, so he his native language was Corsican, which is similar to Italian. It's very different from French. So he was mercilessly bullied and teased by his uh, fellow students for having this thick rural Corsican accent. He could not speak French well, but it did not make much of a difference on him. He was a strong-willed, strong-minded boy, and he was able to learn French quickly, and he was able to adapt. So it was found that Napoleon was very good at mathematics and logic and tactics and geometry. So his tutors in the French military school advised him to join the French Navy, because in the Navy, you are need to be good at all these things, especially geometry, distances, and the projectile motion and all those things. Napoleon did not owe any particular allegiance to the French. So he actually considered joining the British Royal Navy, right? But then he decided to join the French Infantry, the Artillery Division. Now, what happened was that uh, the French Revolution happened in, uh, it happened in the year 1789. So when this happened, this was a period of great destruction and great upheaval in France, as you can see here. So Napoleon very wisely decided to go back to Corsica for a few years and he waited for this French Revolution to play itself out. And then he rejoined his army in France and he was a young man at the time. Now, he had a very, very interesting baptism of fire. It was a very interesting introduction to actual combat. So it was the siege of the city of Toulon in France. So the this is here this here the circled area is the city of Toulon in France. So what happened was that the French Revolution had happened. The revolutionaries had taken over. They had uh, got rid of the monarchy of France, and this city of Toulon was held by royalist forces who were against the French Revolution. Right. So this city, the city of Toulon, looks like this. It is a port city, it has a harbor, and it has a hill that overlooks the city. So this city was held by royalist forces who were against the French Revolution. They wanted to bring back the royalty of France and get rid of the revolutionary forces. So Napoleon was his first major military engagement. He was in charge of the French artillery. And, and what's interesting is that the, the royalist forces were helped by the British Royal Navy. And the British Royal Navy was in this harbor over here. So they were able to provide firepower and, and cover to the insurrectionists with their long-range cannons and all that. So what Napoleon did was that he, with his artillery division, climbed up on this hill that overlooks the city 
of Toulon. And he was able, once he was able to climb up, he was able to target the British ships with his powerful cannons and he was able to get rid of them. He was able to evict the British Royal Navy from the harbor. And this essentially ensured that the insurrection came to an end and the revolutionary forces were able to take over the city of Toulon. And this could have become a very big deal if the insurrectionists had succeeded. It could have threatened the entire success of the French Revolution itself. So this was a very major achievement for this young man, Napoleon Bonaparte. And this success at Toulon catapulted him to great fame. It made him a, a famous young uh, soldier, officer. And a few years later, in 1795, there was another insurrection, the Jacobin insurrection in the heart of Paris itself, which was against, uh, again, a counter-revolutionary insurrection. So Napoleon again came to the rescue of the French revolutionary forces in Paris. He opened artillery fire in the heart of Paris. In the heart of Paris, he opened fire with cannons in the heart of Paris. In, in, in the heart of Paris, and he killed more than fourteen hundred counter-revolutionaries. So this was again a very big achievement by Napoleon. He was able to do the right thing at the right time, and he was able to save the the revolution. So. So this brought him even more fame and more accolades. He was placed in charge of the army of Italy. Now, what happened was that during the French Revolution, see, the revolutions are very, very chaotic affairs. They can do more harm than good to a country. It's a very violent and chaotic affair. So the, the French... Uh, so France had, made, had a great deal of territory in Italy at the time. But the, because of the uh, French Revolution and the chaos that ensued, all these territorial gains were frittered away. They were lost. The Austrians were able to take over those territories that the French held in Italy. So Napoleon in 1796 was put in charge of the army of Italy. And he very quickly went to war with the Austrians. And he was very successful. He was a brilliant commander of the army and he fought the Austrians and he regained all the lost French territory. So this was 1796-1797, right? So this brought him even more fame, even more accolades. He became a very prominent person. Now, after that, he went to Egypt. His ambition started growing larger. He wanted to cut off the British trade routes to India and eventually he wanted to take over India itself. So the stepping stone to this was Egypt. So Napoleon invaded Egypt. Uh, he had made an alliance with the butcher of Mysore, Tipu Sultan, in his, uh, in his campaign against the English. So Napoleon decided to conquer Egypt. So he landed in Egypt and initially there was a, a great deal, deal of success. He was able to make uh, good progress in Egypt. But then the British Navy against uh, under Admiral Nelson was able to destroy the French fleet and this brought an end to the French campaign of Napoleon Bonaparte. So he, he was able to come back to France via Syria and Damascus and uh, through a roundabout route. And once he was back in France, he engineered a coup in Paris and he became the dictator of France. He wrote a new constitution, he proclaimed himself the consul for life, and he installed himself in the royal palace in Paris. Right? This was in 1799. In the year 1804, he became the emperor of France. He was, he was, his coronation was done by the Pope himself. In 1805, he became the emperor of Italy. So it is very interesting that in just 19 years of time, Napoleon went from being a completely unknown and obscure person to being the emperor of France and Italy in just 19 years. So this is lesson number four. And that is nothing is impossible. If you are capable of doing something, if you pursue it, then anything can be achieved. This man went from being an absolute nobody to being the emperor of France and Italy. So that is lesson number four. Nothing is impossible. Now, if we continue the story of Napoleon, we find that 
all of this success all of this very quick very rapid success went to his head and he made too many and too many enemies too many powerful enemies the british became his enemies the russians became his enemies the austrians became his enemies the prussians became his enemies he wanted to expand all over he wanted to conquer the whole of europe and the whole of the world so everybody became his enemies he made very powerful and very numerous enemies and this eventually led to his downfall in the battle of waterloo he met his end his army was defeated and very quickly then he lost all his power and he was exiled to the island of saint helena by the british in 1815 where he died in 1821 so this brings us to lesson number 5 and the lesson is that hubris and overconfidence defeat even the best of people napoleon was a brilliant and very capable person but he was overconfident and he was over ambitious it is good to be ambitious but success depends on the small mundane things it depends on planning and logistics and operations it doesn't depend on big big brilliant ideas it is good to have big brilliant ideas but if you don't plan it properly if you don't execute your plans properly then you are bound to fail and this happens when you are overconfident and you are overcome with hubris so that is lesson number 5 the lesson from the life of napoleon bonaparte let's go on to lesson number 6 and we go back a little bit in a uh, little bit in time to the 13th century and we go into asia and into the country of mongolia now i'm i'm sure you noticed that i have blurred out a certain part of the map it's because this map was showing the wrong boundary of india and i would i will i would not like to show that that's why i've blurred out that portion so we are talking about mongolia in the 13th century right so this is the extent of mongolia around that time this was mongolia it it does include parts of present day china which have these regions of mongolia are currently occupied by china so this was mongolia in those days now in the year 1158 or 1160 a boy was born in mongolia his name was temujin right this boy had a terrible childhood it was a very bad childhood he had a great deal of struggle as he grew up but he was able to overcome all his all his struggles at this time mongolia was a very badly divided country it had a number of tribes who were all at war with each other just like the germanic tribes we mentioned some time ago so all of these different mongolian tribes were at war with each other they were always in conflict and these conflicts and wars were engineered by the empire to the south of mongolia which is china so it was a very difficult place to live in everybody was at war with each other this is the mongolia that this boy temujin grew up in it was a very terrible childhood it was a very it was a great uh, an adulthood full of struggle and this man as he grew he struggled to unify mongolia he struggled for decades from his from his teens to his 20s to his 30s to his 40s but by the time he reached uh, the mid 40s he was able to achieve success and he was able to unify the and he was able to defeat every single mongolian tribe and bring them under his banner he was able to unify the mongolian nation and they all acknowledged him as their leader and the title they gave him was chinggis khan chinggis khan means the greatest oceanic ruler so this man chinggis khan is the greatest ever conqueror in known history we don't know of any man any conqueror who has conquered more territory than him this man conquered more territory in two decades than roman emperors were able to conquer in 300 years that's how great he was his empire was greater than any other any other empire in known history so chinggis khan is considered to be the founder of the yuan dynasty of china his son ogode khan succeeded him as the khan of the mongol empire his grandson kublai khan was the was the first emperor of of uh, of the yuan dynasty in china but they have backdated it to start with chinggis khan as a mark of respect so this was the mongol empire and the mongol empire lasted from the beginning of the 13th century to the middle of the 14th century sometime around 
1368. So this was the largest extent of the Mongol Empire. The maps are not very accurate. It's just a, a, a rough representation. So you can see how large this empire was eventually. Now this empire, it dissolved by the by the mid 14th century. It had many fragmentary offshoots and all that, but it didn't it don't, it don't last very long more than a century and a half after the death of Chinggis Khan. After that, it fragmented into many pieces. So this great empire fragmented quickly, which is strange. Maybe it's not. Because even if you look at the Roman Empire, which was from the 1st century BCE to the 5th century AD, the Roman Empire also eventually fragmented and uh, dissolved away. We see the same thing with the Mauryan Empire of India. It was once an enormous empire, but then it fragmented away by the middle of the second century BCE. We see the same thing with the Kushan Empire, another enormous empire. The greatest emperor was Kanishka the Great. Even this great empire eventually fragmented and dissolved. We see the same thing with the Gupta Empire, which was another great empire, with the Chola Empire, with the Turkic Mughal Empire, with the Maratha Empire, and many other empires. This is a story we see over and over and over again. These great empires are formed by great emperors, by great conquerors, and eventually, after, after a period of time, they all dissolve and fragment and die away. And this brings us to lesson number six. Lesson number six is that kingdoms, empires, and nations fail and disintegrate due to poor leadership and poor succession. You may have great leaders, but if the successors aren't good, if you don't have a proper mechanism of succession, then the empire or the kingdom or the nation is doomed to disintegrate, right? So the thing is that successors have to be good. It has to be a meritocratic succession. Succession is not about popularity. See, in politics, in, in democracy, the most popular politician wins and becomes the leader. But in leadership, real leadership, real leaders have to make very unpopular decisions. They have to make very hard decisions, which will be wildly unpopular with the people. But it has to be done for the long-term good of the country and the people. So true leaders are often very unpopular. And the democratic process and all this, it, it is essentially a popularity contest. And these are two opposites. Good leaders, great leaders are never very popular. And very popular politicians are seldom ever great leaders. Right? So this is the problem. So the successors, as long as they are truly good leaders, if that happens, if you have a mechanism of succession that ensures that the best possible leader comes to power after the previous leader, then the empire or the nation will continue to prosper. But if it is all, it, it becomes a popularity contest and there is a lack of meritocratic succession, then the standards will start declining. The standards of leadership, leadership will start going down. And this is what we see eventually with every empire. The Marathas, they had the great Chhatrapati Shivaji Maharaj, who was the founder. If he had lived another 20 years, he would have conquered the whole of India back from the, from the Turks. His successors were able to create a greater empire, but eventually, because of poor succession, the entire empire fragmented. And this is what we see with every empire. So it is all about leadership. It is all about succession. So the lesson number six is that kingdoms, empires, and nations fail and disintegrate and fragment because of poor leadership and poor succession. As long as we have a system that promotes and puts forth the best possible leaders, our nation is going to be successful. Otherwise, we are doomed. That is lesson number six. And for lesson number seven, let's come back to India and let's talk about what everyone's talking about, which is Afghanistan. So Afghanistan has always been part of India. It has been part of India for thousands of years. During the Mahabharata time, we had very prominent personalities from Afghanistan. For instance, the lady Gandhari, she was a queen uh, of Hastinapur. Then you had Shakuni, who was her brother. 
right? So these are people from Gandhar, from present-day Afghanistan. So Afghanistan has been part of India for, 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 for millennia, for thousands of years. It was part of the Mauryan Empire, as you can see. It was part of the Kushan Empire, as you can see. It has a very rich, very ancient Hindu and Buddhist heritage that goes back thousands of years. Yes, you can see these ancient Buddhist stupas, ancient Buddhist temples in the region of Gandhar, present-day Gandhar. Now, what happened was that Afghanistan came under these uh, Turkic invasions. It was the first part of India that bore the brunt of the Turkic invasions, which came in from the northwest of India. And Afghanistan, Gandhar was Islamized about a thousand years ago. The Ghori dynasty, which was a Hindu-Buddhist dynasty, was the first Afghan dynasty to be Islamized. The indigenous culture of Afghanistan was stamped out by force. And then you started having these waves of invasions into the rest of India, emanating out of Afghanistan. So Afghanistan became Islamized. And then they started, these Afghans, these, these ancient Indians themselves started invading and destroying India. So remember this, Afghanistan is the original Kashmir. What you are seeing in Kashmir today happened a thousand years ago in Afghanistan, right? So let's look a little further into the history of Afghanistan. This guy, Sher Shah Suri, so he was born in Bihar in, uh, and, and he was the king of Delhi. He was able to conquer Delhi for a brief period of time between 1540 and 1545. He died in a very stupid, silly uh, gunpowder accident. So he was, well, he was an Afghan. He was an Indian, of course, because he, he Afghans are Indians. And he did not see himself as a foreigner. He saw the Turks as foreigners and he fought the Turks. But he himself was a very brutal ruler, and he did he did lots of atrocities in in India, especially against the natives of India. Right now, this guy Sher Shah Suri's successor was the king Hemchandra Vikramaditya, who was initially a general in uh, Sher Shah Suri's army. After Sher Shah Suri died, Hemchandra Vikramaditya was the best and most uh, capable general in that army, in his army, and he became the next king of Kabul and he was able to conquer Delhi and he was installed as the emperor of Delhi in a Hindu ceremony even though his entire army was Pashtuns, they were all Muslims but he was installed as the rightful emperor of India in Delhi and he was the last native emperor of India the last native emperor, the last Hindu emperor of India and after that, things went bad, as we know, because the Turks were able to take over again. So when this invader Akbar came into India to, to try and conquer India, he fought Hemchandra Vikramaditya. And Hemu died because of bad luck. He got an arrow in the eye, a stray arrow. And he died because of that. So these Turks cut off Hemu's head and they sent it to Kabul to be displayed to the public to terrorize the people of Kabul. See, this is what we did to your king. So that they could be subdued. So that is the story of Hem Chandra Vikramaditya. He was an Indian, a Hindu, but he had an Afghan Muslim Pashtun army. Now then we go on to the uh, to the 18th century. We had these invasions from Afghanistan by Ahmad Shah Abdali. He launched seven or eight invasions of India between 1748 and 1770, approximately. And he was most Afghan who assisted a foreign invasion of India. So the Iranian tyrant Nadir Shah invaded India in 1739-1740 and this guy Ahmad Shah Abdali assisted Nadir Shah in the invasion of India. So Nadir Shah was able to invade India successfully. It turned into a horrific bloodbath. This guy was a monster and Ahmad Shah Abdali, the, the Afghan, the Pashtun, helped this monster in his invasion of India. So it's around this time that the Afghans finally said that we are no longer Indians. We are different from you. So that's what happened. Now in 1799, we had the beginning of the Sikh empire under the great king, the great king uh, Ranjit Singh, right? So 1799 to, 17, to 1839 was the time in which uh, the great king Ranjit Singh was able to create the Sikh empire. And See, the uh, Ahmad Shah Abdali had conquered northern India. 
He had conquered Kashmir. He did lots of horrific atrocities in Kashmir. He converted lots of Kashmiris to that religion. Now, uh, Maharaja Ranjit Singh was able to evict and expel the Afghans, the Pashtuns from Kashmir, from Punjab. And he was able to take back all these territories. And he, he also took a great deal of Pashtun territory un, into his empire, right, as a punitive measure. So this is the start of the Sikh empire. It was not a very large empire, but it was, it was a very consequential empire. And at this time, you had the British in India. The British uh, stock was rising in India. And this was the time of the great game also between the Russian Empire and the British Empire. The British wanted to retain India under their dominion. The Russians wanted to reach India and try and get the British out of here. So there was this great game going on in Central Asia at the time. Then you had the Anglo-Afghan Wars. The first Anglo-Afghan War was in uh, 1838. It was a defeat for the British. Then you had the first Anglo-Sikh War in 1845 after the death of Maharaj Ranjit Singh. And the second Anglo-Sikh war was what the British won in 1848-1849. And with that, they came in contact with Afghanistan. And then there was a second Anglo-Afghan war in 1878, which the British won. Now, the border of Maharaja Ranjit Singh's empire and Afghanistan was what the British used to demarcate the border between British India and Afghanistan. And that is known as the Durand line. It is the line that demarcates British India and Afghanistan. After India and Pakistan were partitioned, it became Pakistan's border with Afghanistan. But as you know, a great deal of Pashtun territory had been incorporated by Ranjit Singh Ji into his empire. And therefore, a great, a significant portion of the Pashtun heartland is now in Pakistan. And this is a territorial dispute between Afghanistan and Pakistan. So this originates in 1893. In 1897, in so, so this is that Durand line which we spoke about. It was uh, demarcated in 1893 on the basis of the conquests of Maharaja Ranjit Singh. In 1897, you had the Tira campaign in which the British were trying to consolidate the, their rule in this region. And you had this great uh, battle of Saragari, which is, which is, there's a movie made about it, right? So what this was essentially was, it was these Sikhs who fought the Afghans were essentially fighting on behalf of the British against Pashtuns who were trying to defend their homeland. That's what it truly was. It was not a great battle, a great battle between India and Afghanistan. It was in the Pashtun territories which are not part of Pakistan. And the British were trying to consolidate their hold over this region. And these Indians, these Sikhs, fought for their British masters against the Pashtuns. So it was essentially, it was essentially Indians fighting Indians. And that, that's the sad part of it, right? So then you had the third Anglo-Afghan war in, uh, in uh, 1919. And then if you fast forward a little bit, you have the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan in, 17, in, in 1979, which is a whole different story. So if we look at the past 1000 years, I'm just taking uh, Afghanistan as an example to illustrate this bigger point. If you look at the past 1000 years of Indian history, we see Indians fighting Indians of, on behalf of foreign occupying powers and foreign religions. And even today, in the 21st century, we have Indians still fighting Indians in the name of democracy, in the name of freedom of expression, in the name of religion, in the name of caste and class and whatnot. Nothing has really changed. And India's education system makes it all worse. So if we look at what went wrong in the past 1000 years of India's history, we come to lesson number seven. And this is that there are three crucial non-negotiable ingredients for a nation or a civilization to succeed and thrive. Number one, you need to have excellence in science and technology. Number two, you need to have excellence in leadership. Leadership has to be predicated on succession, political continuity based on meritocracy. You need to put forth the best leaders, not the most popular leaders. You need the best leader. 
so that's what needs to happen and number 3 you need to have a common unifying identity in the country only then you will have a a a country that will succeed and thrive in the long run so this is lesson number 7 three crucial non negotiable ingredients number 1 excellence in science and technology number 2 excellence in leadership and number 3 a common unifying identity and as of today india lacks all three things so this is what india needs to work on if india wants to rise to its full potential which what we know what india's potential is if you look at the past 10000 years of history we know that india was always the greatest civilization of all time the most prosperous the most powerful and most advanced civilization in all fields that you can think of so if india wants to re- retain to regain that status india needs to ensure that the lesson number 7 is not forgotten these in brief are the seven timeless lessons from 10000 years of human history of course there are many more lessons that to be learned but i just want to start with these with these seven lessons in the future i will talk about other lessons as well so that brings us to an end of this this video thank you so much for watching and i will see you next time thank you very much bye